So when my wife saw the title to this sermon, she said, you do know everybody's going to think you're going to talk about like recycling and being a good steward of the earth. I think all that stuff is really good for the, just to clarify. I know I serve a Unitarian congregation. If I didn't say that up front, you all would run me out of here and I wouldn't have a job by Monday morning. So that's all well and good. I'm not going to preach about that at all, though, this morning. If you thought that, I'm sorry if the sermon title was uh, deceiving. But this morning, what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about how all of us have been and remain human beings. As Hamlet said, we are kings of infinite space, bounded in nutshells. We live in a world we don't fully understand. We inhabit bodies that betray us. We're bound to communities that give us language and culture and a shared sense of meaning and purpose. And we're also bound to those inner longings and those yearnings that confuse us as often as they give us hope and purpose. And if you're like me every once in a while, you ask yourself, what part of me is most real? What parts of me will I leave behind? And what parts of me will be lost when I'm gone? Now, I don't think that these questions have been answered, but I do think that when we lose sight of these realities and questions, we end up losing sight of what makes us human in the first place. I think it's questions like these that we measure our lives by. So for instance, if the realist part of me is being a husband and a father, then what I'll leave behind is some love. If part of me is being a pastor, then I'll leave an example of ministry for people to consider or ignore. Now your answers will of course be different from mine, but I'm confident we all have similar questions. Several years ago in my book club that I used to, ha that I used to have, we read this wonderful book by James Rebanks called The Shepherd's Life. And so towards the end of this memoir in which Rebanks describes the very hard work and life of being a shepherd, it's this charming moment at the end of the book, he's lying on his back and he's looking over these sheep that he's just let loose in the English countryside. And he thinks this to himself. He says, this is my life and I want no other. I imagine that most of us want to look at our life and say the same thing or something close to the same thing, especially at the end. So one of the gifts of being, as a, being a pastor is the invitation I've gotten to spend time with people at the end of their life. I've seen people die scared and I've seen people die angry. I've also seen people die calm and content. And people die angry and scared for all kinds of reasons. But the people who die calm and content, they share, at least in my experience, a few things. They share gratitude. They share gratitude for people who considered them even when they weren't at their best. Gratitude for kindness, for church, for children. Gratitude that a cancer went into remission. Gratitude a grandchild got sober. Gratitude that when trying harder stopped being an option, they were able to find mercy and confidence in the storehouses of the divine. What they also had was a commitment to honesty. They admitted their mistakes, they accepted their limitations, and they asked for forgiveness. And so, with that in mind, given that this is the last sermon I'm going to give to you until mid-September when we kick off 
the next church year, I'm going to share with you something that I think will help you die calm and content, hopefully a long, long time from now. Now, you might be able to say something like, this is my life, and I want no other. So are you ready for the advice? This is what you all came here for this morning. Here it is. Do not lie. Did you get that? Do not lie. Now, I'm sure all of you know that lying rightly understood is intentionally saying something we know to be false to deceive. We live in an era when it's not always easy to know what the truth is. There was this thinker several decades ago who, who he just totally wowed the philosophical world. His name was Ludwig Wittgenstein. Now, I read him in college, and I didn't understand 99% of what I read that he said, but here's the 1% that I did understand. He said this, quote, The truth can be spoken only by someone who is already at home in it, not by someone who lives in untruthfulness and does no more than reach out towards it from untruthfulness, end quote. So what it means to be at home in the truth isn't easy to figure out, especially these days. But thankfully for us, for you, for me, the church is an institution that allegedly is based on the practice of telling the truth. There are also wonderful things like science that show us how much the truth matters by using negative results to get positive ones. And the humanities do this too. The pages of history and literature are places that all of us can turn to when we want to challenge our most cherished illusions. In other words, we're supposed to be formed by the truths we encounter in the wisdom of science and literature and religion and sometimes Netflix. But as you know, not everyone these days is at home in the truth. And I'm not just talking about abstract people. I'm talking about all of us. We are good, decent people. You are Unitarian Universalists. I know this about you. But I also know that we can be a self-deceived people as well. If you don't believe me, I'm going to invite you to just consider your most serious relationships. And so maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your kids, it's your parents, it's your friends. Now don't raise your hands, or you can if you want to. But how many of you have white lied or fully lied because you didn't want to threaten the intimacy or the calmness of a relationship. No one has raised their hands, which means all of you have done this. How many of you have lied to keep up appearances? Again, you've all done this. Because the answer is all of us. And lately, though, I'm not just going to pick on you. Lately, it's our politics that we often see lies masquerading as truths. Now, I'm going to use a Republican example right now. But that said, I'm an equal opportunist. I love to make fun of Democrats, too. If you hang around here long enough, I'm gonna. So just know that, right? If you've got an R after your name, your turn's gonna come, just not this morning. It's a really good example, though. So I'm sure by now, most of you have come across a story on the recently elected New York Congressman, George Santos. So earlier this summer, he was indicted, if you, I'm sure you know this, on 13 counts of federal fraud and money laundering charges, which he's pleaded not guilty to. In America, you are innocent until proven guilty, and he deserves his right in court. 
So over the course of Santos's run for Congress, he presented himself as this experienced financial professional and entrepreneur with degrees from New York University, with very successful stints at Citibank and Goldman Sachs, premier institutions. He broke our hearts. He told us that his mother died in 9-11, and he said that his grandparents were Jewish who survived the Holocaust. Independent reporting across the board have said that not NYU, not Goldman, not Citibank have any record of this man ever being a part of their institution. His mother was in fact in Brazil in 2001, which if you don't know is a long way from New York City. And his grandparents by their own accounts are not Jewish. They didn't survive the Holocaust either. They're actually Brazilian Catholics. Now, Santos has since admitted to, quote, embellishing my resume, end quote. And here's the thing. He maintains to this day that he has a Jewish heritage and that his mother was in the World Trade Center on 9-11. I stay convinced that that's the truth he is on record saying. That's a direct quote. I stay convinced that that's the truth. Now, I don't think it's controversial for me to say that among professionals, up there with cars, salespeople, and ministers of churches, politicians are in a league of their own in terms of bending the truth. This isn't shocking any of you, is it? After all, there's a book on how to be a successful politician that tells you you should lie. It's really famous. It was written in the year 1513 by this wonderful Florentine statesman by the name of Niccolo Machiavelli. He entitled his book, The Prince, and it is a guidebook to this day for politicians and rulers. I tried to be a Machiavellian leader here at this church. It didn't work very well. I didn't really do that, but I should try it just to see how it goes. But so, so Machiavelli was inspired by working for this famous family called the Medici's. You can look them up, Wikipedia, it's wonderful. So Machiavelli famously said that sometimes a leader must act, quote, as a great pretender and dissembler, end quote. And elsewhere in the book, he writes this, quote, one can make this generalization about men and all that women. <laughs> they are ungrateful, they are fickle, they are liars, they are deceivers, they shun danger, and they are greedy for profit. But while you're treating them well, they are yours, but when you are in danger, they are against you, end quote. And so, if it's true that politicians bend the truth to win power, I think it's fair to say that everyday people bend the truth to keep things running smoothly, or sometimes to avoid accountability. Now let me add a quick aside. I actually think there are some times when it's okay to lie. I'm gonna tell you what those instances are so you don't put words in my mouth later. So for instance, I think it's okay to lie if you're trying to protect yourself from physical harm or someone else from harm. I also think another good time that you should always lie is whenever your partner walks out of the closet right before a date and says, do I look good in this? You should always say yes, no matter what. But aside from that, we would be wise to avoid dishonesty because recent research in cognitive science just got published last week. I read it for you. You're welcome. It suggests 
something all of us should be concerned about. You can learn to believe your own lies. Did you all know that? Everybody goes, yep, we knew it. I'm going to teach you something you didn't know, or that maybe you didn't know. So it's this interesting piece of science, psychologists focused on what happens to our brains when we don't tell the truth. It turns out that the more you lie, the more truthful it seems to you. Here's how it works. The first time you tell a lie, your brain registers it as a lie. You actually know it. Your brain lets you know that you just lied. The force you muster to fabricate a memory, it actually sets off these sort of like alarm bells in your brain that says an intruder is present. Get rid of it. But over time, this is a scientific term, our source monitoring framework fatigues with each and every passing fib. And so one of the researchers, a cognitive scientist by the name of Quinn Krobach, he said that if a lie or fabrication provides an explanation for something, it's more likely to be confused with what's true. So channeling Machiavelli, Trobach added this quote, I love it, quote, people are casual monsters. This is what scientists say about us. We are casual monsters. We're monsters because we love knowing why things happen. And if we don't get an explanation for why something happens, what do we do? We just fill in the gaps. So it turns out that lies have this sort of like fake it till you make it kind of a uh, quality. So if I tell a lie to multiple people, one researcher uh, explained, quote, I'm effectively rehearsing the lie. The more you repeat something, Krobach said, the more you start to actively imagine it. And the more you imagine it, the more this memory becomes vivid and detailed. And what this ends up doing is it exploits our brain's tendency to conflate detail with truth. So in one study of more than 600 undergraduates, why are they always going to undergraduates? But anyways, one group of 600 undergraduates, they were told, we're going to show you a video. And at the end of the video, we want you to lie about what you saw. You get it? So one week later, all of those 600 undergraduates were brought back to talk about the video they watched. Get this, more than 60% of those in the study insisted that their made up events were real. They said, it's all real, it all really happened. So this is why when Krobach was asked whether he thinks people can believe their own lies, he said, quote, yes, absolutely. A percentage of Americans believe demonstrably false lies. That's the researcher. And so what's at stake here isn't just scientific explanation. What he says is that what's at stake is also democracy. Also, what's at stake is a little bit of our sanity and maybe even our lives. I think it has to do with our lives because the same process of converting lies into truth it impacts how we justify our behaviors, and also our attitudes. I think this is maybe why uh, one of the reasons that people just fall down the rabbit hole of online echo chambers. We find something, we don't like the facts, and so we hunt until we find a lie, and if we don't find the lie, we're just gonna fake it until we make it. I think this is a good place to share with you a bit of wisdom from 2,000 years ago by a gentleman named Jesus. He was a rabbi. Here's what he said. 
He says, do you not see that whatever goes into your mouth enters the stomach and then goes into the sewer? But it's what comes out of your mouth that proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions. And it's this that defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, this doesn't defile. And so Jesus and the cognitive scientists are telling us the same thing. Question ourselves because the devices of our heart, what we believe to be true about ourselves, are actually plagued at times by faulty wiring. So there's this old confession in this church that if you looked at the old bulletins going all the way back to the founding, what you'd see is that this church actually used to participate in weekly confession to one another. So what happened is everybody would take communion each and every week for a long time. But before anybody would take communion, they would all gather around and they would say something like this collectively. Forgive me the things I shouldn't have done and for not doing the things I should have done. So in a way less dramatic example of confession, one that I've shared before, but I'm going to share it again because it's this good. My dear friend and mentor starts every single day of his life by confessing. And so what he does is he rolls over to his beautiful wife, Faith, while they're still laying in bed. He's been married to her for 63 years. He's been waking up beside her for a long time. And he looks over at Faith and he says, Faith, I'm really sorry. Mind you, at this point, nothing has happened in the day. They've just woken up. That's it. But Carl starts by saying, Faith, I'm sorry. And then he goes on to say, forgive me, Faith, for being an idiot later today. Faith, forgive my failing body and forgive my failing mind. It's since become a bit of a joke in the family, but the thing is, is that he means it. He means it because he's earned every bit of this wisdom over the course of his 91 years of living. He knows that his wiring is faulty. And he knows that he needs his wife and his kids and his friends in order to stay honest. Now, I think I do not lie. I think me telling you do not lie turns out to be a more complex demand because so often we're lying because we're trying to be good. We lie because we want to change. We want to be better. We want to be transformed. But our desire to be transformed must be balanced with our commitment at being home in the truth, which means we learn, we have to learn how to keep our pride in check. And I think this is much harder than it sounds. It's hard because everywhere we look, we see smeared on social media and in opinion pages, lies about how we can sweat and strive and overexert ourselves into becoming an entirely different person. I don't think that this is possible. I think you are you, and I think you will always be you. That's ancient wisdom, just as much as it's modern. Because having limits is the inescapable experience of being a human. And admitting this doesn't mean that you're a failure. You can't work out in a way that's going to make you shorter or taller than your genetics made you. You can't meditate your way into some kind of like a personality transplant. You can't curate your Instagram feed in a way that makes you feel happy if you are clinically depressed. Having said that, I do believe that transformation is possible. I just don't think it's limitless. 
And believe me, no one in this room wants to be a better Brian than me. I don't want to be the same Brian 10 years from now who waits until Saturday night to write a sermon. I want to be a better Brian. I also want to be a Brian who doesn't run all these, like, analysis in my brain, and every once in a while I get stuck on this treadmill that just says, really, if I just had more, I'd have a better life. What my mentor tells me is he says that to be the husband or father or minister or wife or friend you were called to be, you have to live in a way that slowly over time it comes true. And what his suggestion is in order to slowly become the person you want to be slowly over time is that you kind of do the same thing as lying, which is you sort of live it until you believe it and you start being it. What his advice does is it nudges us into the questions that really matter. What part of me is most real? What parts of me will I leave behind? What parts of me will I lose when I'm gone? If we're honest with ourselves, we're going to admit that change always comes slowly. I read this great newsletter by someone who I sort of think of as a friend. What she says is that when she's trying to change, she never aims for breakthroughs. What she aims for is just to be 1% better than last year. This year, I'll be 1% less a jerk. Next year, 1% less. And so on, slowly, until the part of her she leaves behind is just a bit less of a jerk than the one she started with. To live in the truth will give you a life that will be difficult. But one way that will make it possible for you to look back and want no other life than the one you've lived. There's this great preacher, Sam Wells. He said that the only things in our life that will last are those things that embody the truth. And so a well-lived life will not be determined by the number of 5Ks you've run or the power you obtained or the people you impressed, not even the money you made, but rather those aspects of your life that abide in the truth. So again, I say to you, do not lie. Amen.